Ladies and gentlemen, aunties and uncles, boys and girls, and everyone else around the world, welcome to the Blendian Project podcast where we use love to redefine Black and South Asian relationships while shattering stereotypes at the same damn time. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm your host and founder of the Blendian Project podcast, Jonah Batumzi. Walk with us. Paolo Coelho famously once said, when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you achieve it. This manifests itself in many ways. For example, sometimes it means people unexpectedly entering our lives and helping to solve a problem. In 2019, I held an event in Shoreditch for Black History Month and was looking for one more panel member. A mutual acquaintance recommended a contributor of their own platform by the name of Arian Lawrence. As I read Arian's work, I noticed we shared a similar interest in many of the same topics. And even though I say Caribbean and he says Caribbean, our stories share a similar immigrant narrative. Now, here's the kicker. Arian is also in a blending relationship. I always knew we'd work together, but wasn't really quite sure how. Today, I welcome Arian to the show as our second co-host of the Blendian Project podcast and give you a chance to hear his story. We apologize in advance for any issues with the sound quality and are working on resolving this in the next episode. Let's go. My name is Arian, um, Arian Lawrence. Um, I am a teacher. I am British-born um, West Indian. Um, Grew up in London, and I am married father, married to a British-born Kenyan Gujarati wife. Um, I grew up in Northwest London, um, in Queens Park, which kind of straddles Northwest and, and West London, um, and had pretty pretty standard upbringing or what I assumed was, was fairly standard. Yeah. Um, my parents are both immigrants. Um, they came from um, the West Indies, from Jamaica and Barbados. My, my father's Jamaican and my mother is Bajan or Barbadian, formal, formal um, way of referring to it. Um, so similar cultures, definitely similar. Um, but as many people in, in the Caribbean will tell you, um, there's somewhat of a superiority complex with the Jamaicans. Um, they refer to the other islands as small islands. Um, okay. And the other smaller islands have uh, a bit of a disdainful, um, you know, retort to, to Jamaica on, on that basis. Are your parents... Uh part of the uh, Windrush generation, would you say? Well, they, they came later than that. So both of them came um, in their teens. Um, they they came kind of part of the same wave. So my grandparents came over here, um, again, kind of later than, than Windrush, um, where there was still a demand and a, and a labor shortage. So um, you'd have recruiters from the UK going over to... Um, the colonies um, and basically saying we have a labor shortage of jobs um, that a lot of 
British people didn't want to do, or there just was a, a shortage generally. Um, and many people came over. So even though that did commence um, kind of post to with with the the Windrush era, um, it it did continue for for a while. Um, actually, very similar kind of what, what you can see happening in in Britain today with um you know the the call for um for labour where you've you've got a shortage where a lot of people maybe don't want to do certain jobs um sure those jobs my grandparents were like we're looking for what we thought might be a better life we're looking for something where we maybe imagined the motherland you know of, of the empire um providing so we'll we'll do that so on my father's side um and my mother's side my grandfathers came over first um, they came over then after selling themselves um, with employment and accommodation, they would eventually send over for their wives. Um, and then they would eventually um, send over for their children, which is how um, both my parents came over with my father. Um, he being born in Jamaica, um, half of his family um, he knew already. And when he arrived in the UK, he found he had other brothers and sisters he'd never met that had British accents, um, but looked <laughs> like him. So it, it was, yeah, it must have been pretty surreal. For my my mom, it was a little bit more standard. Um, she, she, I believe, came over with my grandmother, um, with my grandfather already having been here for a while. Um, so it's probably a little less... Um, of of a, of a shock for her she didn't she didn't come over and find siblings she didn't know about um but it was it was still a shock for both of them and when when they talk about coming over they just describe everything as like the color just being sucked from the life they knew you know everything was kind of gray and cold and i can imagine coming from coming from a, an island or it's rainy can be dreary can be gray um concrete uh you're not yeah. you're not really with nature anymore are you yeah exactly exactly and that's exactly how how they how they describe it um and it, it's funny because having lived here for such a long time i think you do get some people who they just feel you know what i've been away for such a long time this is now my home but then the people probably like my father who having been away for such a long time still don't see the uk as fully being home which is which is strange because his formative years were really spent in the uk you know he was a teenager when he came here um started a family when he came here you'd have thought that a lot of that would have kind of been left in 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 jamaica for him but i think he still still sees it as home which is understandable as to see it as home but you know, for how many decades later, still not fully feeling embraced or not fully embracing the UK as his home probably says a lot about that that immigrant narrative from that time. I can totally understand Arian's father's sentiments regarding his concept of home. There have been numerous occasions where I've been speaking with older South Asian men and women and ask them where they're from or where is home. I'm often surprised when these people's faces light up and they respond, Uganda. 
knowing that their families more than likely were thrown out of the country by Idi Amin in the 70s. I always dig deeper and ask these people whether they've ever returned to Uganda to visit. And 100% of the time, the answer is no. But these people still and always will consider Uganda their home. Earlier, you mentioned you grew up in Northwest London in Queens Park. What was that like? In in a word, it was black. You know, it w- it was very black. My everything I knew, well, I didn't know at the time, but was was black West Indian. Um, I I didn't really appreciate until probably secondary school that I didn't really know any different. And it was it was quite um. It was quite enjoyable listening to Namal's um, podcast as well because she grew up um, not too far from where where I grew up. Where okay, it, it was pretty much predominantly Irish um, community, Irish working class community. Um, and then when I grew up there, probably Irish and black. Um, so so we're kind of talking quite quite conservative with a small C. Um, we're talking quite traditional. We're talking very working class. Um, but I, I didn't really know anything else. I, I wasn't really exposed to other cultures. And that, that wasn't out of any um, insularity on the part of my family. It was just a, a byproduct of where we lived. I mean, I could count on one hand the number of non-Black children in my class. Were the majority of the kids that you grew up with Caribbean West African? Was there a mixture? Mostly Caribbean, um, some some West African, uh, up until kind of the age of 11, that was pretty much it. And you, you, you don't think anything of it, you know. And it's it's funny because now having a child of my own, um, whenever we buy books, we're very keen to buy literature that shows images in his image, you know. So he understands that the world represents him as as a person of color. Um, Whereas for me growing up, that wasn't really something that I saw because I just saw my world. You know, I remember seeing on on like soap operas that my mom might watch um, and you'd always have the Tolkien black family. Mm. I always remember remarking to myself, like, it's really odd. They're the Tolkien black family, but everyone else around me represents what they look like um, because I just didn't see it. And then when I went to secondary school, um, that's when kind of my exposure to other, other communities um, really, really broadened. Um, Was the school still in the same area or did you? So I went, I went to school in South London um, and it was a lot more diverse. Yeah, it was a lot more diverse. Um, probably my first, I was going to say actually my first interaction with um, with South Asians. Um, but actually, that's actually incorrect because one very powerful interaction and probably the first interaction I had was actually at primary school um, from a teacher who taught me in a number of years. Um, and she actually became a, a close family friend. Um, remember like years later, um, we, we were even invited to her daughter's wedding. Okay, um, Mr. Gupta, who um, sadly passed away um, some years ago, um, but that was like my first introduction to someone who was a, a, another person of color, but from a different community and culture than myself and my family. And now I think about it, 
I remember thinking, okay, there's there's some commonality that we have here in kind of in the, the same the same immigrant narrative, um, you know, the as a as a person of color, but not really thinking about okay, there there are some differences here, you know. Sure. Didn't really think about it at the time. But then I think as I got older and was exposed to more um more backgrounds and, and more communities and my friendship group, um, you know, which largely um still exists in terms of like my, my closest friends that I still speak to now um that that kind of widened completely um and then it all changed when I went to university and for the first time in my life I was a minority and I'd never experienced it before gotcha so that's the first time that it actually flipped around then for you yeah that was the first time and I studied history and politics um history is a predominantly middle class um subject or in terms of the, the the demographic that largely gravitates towards um, towards history, um, middle class, white, and I didn't think anything of this because I, I like history, you know, I like sure. politics, so you know, I'm just gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> didn't think anything of it at all, and I remember the time that it hit me was when we went to one of the student union nights and. What uni was it? Sorry. So I went to Queen Mary University of London. Um, okay. In East London. Okay. So I think like most of the the universities in London and the major kind of red brick universities, um, you do have a very large South Asian cohort. And we went into this student union night, and they were playing the same kind of music that we we'd gone out listening to prior to me going to university. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, something's different. I didn't know what it was. And then it hit me. There were no black people. And that was when I realized that I was now the minority, where mm. prior to that, I'd always been the majority or it'd been like you know, secondary school, like a bit more diverse. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that impacted me in in any way negatively. But it did make me think that, you know, like I've been so accustomed to to seeing things a certain way and knowing that my experience is probably the experience of the next person. And maybe that now isn't actually going to be the case. Was there anything from that time growing up that sticks out to you? Um, No, not particularly. Just just that kind of that ongoing realization of the world and cultures were bigger than what I knew from the previous stage of my life you know and and I think that's that's a positive completely you know that kind of every stage every phase in your life you realize there is more than you thought there was and you appreciate that and for me I always was interested and fascinated in other cultures um so it wasn't it wasn't anything that made me feel that I was kind of being ostracized. Um, I didn't ever feel that, um, you know, there was an issue with me being different from, from others. It was just, okay, this, this is what the world is. Um, and, and yeah, I was fine with that. It didn't, it didn't impact me in, in that way, because for me, anyone that, I interacted with you know it was just one of my peers um obviously sure. 
at the time, little, little did I know, um, one of my friends was my now wife. Um, so kind of fast forward years later, that difference would indeed um, become, I don't want to say an issue, but it would be something that would be articulated in a way that at the time I hadn't really given any thought to. And it's obviously something that as, as the, the podcast progresses that we'll you know, definitely delve into. Sure. Sure. Would you say there's anything from your childhood that has really informed the person that you are today? You know, I think class, class probably more so than anything else. Um, I, I see myself even today, um, contrary to how my wife sometimes sees me, but I see myself as still working class. Um, that's what I grew up as. And I think there's something very much in the working class experience where you don't always have the confidence to feel that you're good enough, good enough mm. to compete or to be in a certain space. And for a long time, I felt there was a glass ceiling to what I could do, whether that be in terms of professionally, um, whether it just be my, my general approach to life and, and things that were accessible to me. And there came a point where I realized, no, that that isn't true. Like, I, I can do what I want to do just because someone has had what may appear to be a more somewhat privileged experience growing up than me. It doesn't mean I have to put that glass ceiling on. And I think that changed my perspective. Everything comes with confidence um, yes. and everything comes with self-belief. And yes. without that confidence, without self-belief, without that conviction, that that is the stumbling block on pretty much everything. You know, it's like I won't apply to X university. I won't apply for X graduate scheme. I won't apply for X job. Um, you know, to me, that was more more the challenge. And, and it's funny because, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the UK, um, would probably argue, well, they, they feel that race could be more of an obstacle to them um but but for me i think it was more it was more of a class issue and, and i don't bemoan that because i feel now me being working class and having the confidence that i didn't otherwise have previously has probably just enabled me to do more than than i may have done otherwise because i don't take it for granted um i don't assume it would just be like this but I also know that I've got to keep checking myself in terms of, okay, you can't assume that you can't do something. And I think that's almost like inbuilt in me now. Like, yes, you, you can do this. There's, there isn't something that's stopping you on the mm. basis of something as spurious as you grew up with a different background. Who are several people who have had a large influence on your life? That's a really hard one um, because I think there's so many people in different ways who have been influential. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of cliched ones of, you know, family and friends and teachers and, you know, they may seem cliched, but, but it's true. You know, we can pick individuals from each of those areas um, who, who have been influential, but I actually would say, um, as somewhat of a curveball, the most influential <laughs> person is my son. Um, 
because he's, he's obviously shaped my perspective in a way that prior to him being born, I probably couldn't have imagined, you know. Um, so in terms of like influencing like my, my perspective um, on pretty much everything because he is the, he is the, the center of, of my life. Um, so mm. whatever, whatever I'm doing, in some way, it probably leads back to, is it best for me, my family, and primarily him? Um, so I would say, like, he's he would definitely be the most influential. Um, there were other, like, you know, teachers who um, kind of, say, sparked, like, an interest in, in history and politics for me, or friends who, you know, kind of, like, decades deep in friendship and... They are just that constant cheerleader, um, you know, or not not to sound um, sycophantic, but they're just championing you. And it's like, you know, you, you can do this and, you know, just giving you that encouragement. Um, but I would say, yeah, if I'm going to just put it down to that, that number one um, influence, I'm going to go with my son because, yeah, he's... That's a good one. No, it's a good one. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you think is uh, important uh, regarding your story? I think it's the the most important thing for me is just to engage and digest and enjoy the stories that have already um, come from the platform, the Blending Project, but also will be forthcoming um, to share those stories to use those stories to spark conversations with the the diaspora with the community um on on both sides of you know black community um but also the the south south asian community and to recognize that these groups are not they're not homogenous groups as we just have the blacks and the south asians that you know it, we have such a rich and diverse um identity in, in 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 both groups and that adds so much more to the story that makes it even more of a worthwhile um story that needs to be heard and, and a conversation that i would definitely invite people to take part in um to to reflect on on their own preconceptions that they may have to have those conversations that may be difficult that may be somewhat taboo because this is the only way that we will progress and that we will be able to fight taboos um so yeah i, I just want everyone to to enjoy and, and and to take part in in the story and to share their own stories you know I, I i want to hear the stories that haven't been told because these are stories that deserve to be told and deserve to be heard thank you thank you that's amazing and with that, we've concluded our introductions of the hosts of the show. I really enjoyed that conversation. Arian dropped so many gems on class, perspective, and race. As we progress into the heart of the podcast, these topics will most definitely form a wider part of the conversation. So, three hosts. We're all immigrants from different parts of the world. We've all had different experiences growing up in children, and we're all in blending relationships. Thank you again for tuning in. As always, you can listen to other episodes and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, 
CastBox, and Anchor.fm. Leave us a comment and let us know what you think about the show and tell a friend. Also, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Blending Project. I'm your host, Jonah Batumzi. Peace. Thank you.